Welcome to another edition of Perception Reception. I'm very pleased my guest today is Ambassador James Collins. Jim Collins was U.S. Ambassador to the Russian Federation from 1997 to 2001. He has subsequently been a non-resident senior fellow, Russia and Eurasia program, and diplomat in residence for the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Before his appointment as ambassador to Russia, he served as ambassador at large and special advisor to the Secretary of State for the newly independent states. That was in the mid-1990s. And then as deputy chief of mission and charge d'affaires at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow from 1990 to 1993. In addition to three diplomatic postings in Moscow, he also held positions at the U.S. Embassy in Amman, Jordan, and the Council General in Izmir, Turkey. He has gotten so many awards, uh, it would be hard to go through them all, uh, but I will mention that he's the recipient of the Secretary of State's Award for Distinguished Service and the Department of State's Distinguished Honor Award, as well as the Secretary of State's Award for Career Achievement. So, and there's even more than that, Jim, but uh, I'll stop there. Welcome. Great to be with you, Rick. So um, Gorbachev and Yeltsin, uh, when they were leading Russia, uh, they marked what seemed like a, a, a real journey from the Soviet Union and communism to really a more democratic, open, and economically independent nation. Was that just an illusion? Was that a mirage from the get-go? Or has Putin successfully engineered a return to the Soviet days? Well, let me say to begin with that I think we must not think that there's been any return to the Soviet Union. Uh, the Soviet Union's gone. We're three decades away from its end. With respect to Gorbachev, I think the reality for President Gorbachev was that he did, in fact, want to end and did end, along with President Reagan and President Bush, uh, the Cold War. And it was done by negotiation. But his objective was to modernize the Soviet Union and keep it intact and keep it as a communist state. Mr. Yeltsin came along and really put an end to that. He decided, uh, or it was decided, that the future of Moscow's leadership meant meeting a, an independent Russia. The empire Russia had controlled of the a new 14 other states uh, came apart. You installed a market economy and you created uh, a system which was based on a new premise politically for what is legitimate political power. And that is you had to have the consent of the people for the government in power. Now, that was as opposed to a bloodline in the time of the dynasty of the Romanovs or the rule of the communist party, which in a sense was a priesthood of a theology that was secular. Rather now you had to get elected was the point. So did he mean, did Gorbachev and Yeltsin want to bring real change? The answer is yes. And I think the other thing that was important about them was that in both Gorbachev and particularly Yeltsin did so with the idea that they were going to be an integral part of what I would just call more broadly the Euro-Atlantic community of which the United States is a part. So as 
you'll recall I did um, uh, and was proud to do President Clinton's advance lead to uh, Russia in uh, uh, the fall of 1998. And those were sort of the waning days of uh, of Yeltsin. He was, you know, struggling with uh, with some uh, health issues. And, um, and, you know, so then in comes uh, uh, Vladimir Putin. And it almost seems like he's never, that Putin has never forgiven the U.S. for its role in bringing an end to the Soviet Union. I mean, it almost feels like what he's doing now is payback more than it is strategy. But, um, you know, there may just be a perception. Uh, it, what, what, what do you think his end game actually is? Well, I think his end game is really the same as his beginning game, in, in a sense. Um, I remember very well when he first came to office, right, the very first days, he put together what I would say was a message to his people. And that was that if we can come together, if we can be unified and not divided as we have been in the period of Yeltsin and the period of, of Gorbachev about reforms, then Russia can be great again. And I would say his motto long before and rather later man uh, adopted it was to make Russia great again. And what he meant by that really was restore its economic base consolidate political power so that you had a meaningful political system that was unified across the extent of the Russian Federation. Not the empire, but the Russian Federation. And perhaps most of all, and relevant to us, restore Russia's role as the other superpower, as as a great power again, uh, after a period of great decline and and, uh, economic hardship. Now, did he want to restore the Soviet Union? I don't think so. And I don't think he ever articulated that. What he did want was to see Russia and Moscow's leadership as the the primary power in Eurasia. That is the old Soviet space, if you will. He also wanted uh, recognition of Russia's role as, I think, what I would say at least something of an equal to the United States in the international community. You know, there was a great disappointment at the loss of status when the Soviet Union collapsed and Russia no longer was the other superpower where a meeting with the American president decided the fate of Europe and really the larger global community. So what he was looking at was restoring, I think, Russia's position and I think that's been his end game, if you will, and his purpose. Now, you know, that has often come up against uh, challenges from our side uh, as he sees them. And therefore, yes, I think, you know, gaining acceptance from the United States of the Russian position as a great power and major uh, influence at the international table equal to its role in the Security Council in New York, is probably what he's about. And I don't think that's going to change. Yeah. So for for those of us who, you know, maybe uh, have a more uh, sinister (laughs) view, um, you know, you take a look at um, his aggression in Ukraine, 
you know, his very close uh, relationship with Lukashenko over in Belarus. And so uh, those of us who aren't uh, quite as comfortable with the notion that he's just trying to regain uh, status as uh, a major power, you know, we, we take a look at some of those actions and think there's more going on here. Or is he just trying I to think, get attention? Yeah, I think there's no question that he has staked the position that there is, should be no challenge to Russia's role as the preeminent power in Eurasia. And that for him basically it means the former Soviet space without the Baltic countries, by the way. Uh, there's never really been a, a sense that that was an issue. But what he has seen is uh, an effort to deny Russia that position, um, to have uh, the Western powers led by the United States encroach further and further into the former Soviet uh, space, and to challenge the very idea that Russia has what he calls a sphere of influence or Russian interests, uh, an area of Russian interests. And remember, he has been trying to create, in a sense, a counterpart to the European Union, uh, the Eurasian Economic Union. Uh, he's been trying to create a counterpart to NATO in the uh, CIS Treaty Organization. In short, he has, in fact, I think, seen restoring Russia's greatness as having Russia accepted as the great power uh, in the eastern part of the Euro-Atlantic world and accepts that the Americans are the great power in the Western part. And I think it's fair to say he also understands that Russia is not the equal to the United States when it comes to economic power or military power at this point, except for nuclear weapons. And I think, you know, in that sense, um, he is uh, trying to demonstrate that pushing uh, Russia beyond the limits it sees as its legitimate position or trying to take away from its legitimate position is going to be resisted. And I would argue that fundamentally in Ukraine, he saw himself defending Russian interest rather than be an aggression against Ukraine. We don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. But I think we need to understand that it's seen in their view as really pretty much being a defensive operation of maintaining Russia's position in the eastern part of the Euro-Atlantic world. But before we get to, and I want to get to what uh, expectations should be as the Trump uh, presidency comes to an end and the Biden presidency begins, and we'll get to that in a minute, but if, if you have your crystal ball out there and, and you look at uh, 10 years down the line, and assuming that Putin remains in control, which it certainly seems he plans to do, uh, where, where do you see Russia a decade from now? Well, I think the challenge Mr. Putin faces uh, going forward is essentially that his economy, uh, his uh, authority in the region really rests on his ability to deliver on uh, 
if you will, making Russia great again. And that means not just militarily, it, it also has to mean economically, and in some sense, uh, morally and politically. And I think, uh, you know, the system he has created and the, and the role he has played up to now have carried him a long ways. I mean, compared to 1991 or two or three, the life of most Russians today is much better than it was. But that's 30 years ago. And they're really beginning to ask increasingly, well, what have you done for me in the last two or three years? And I think the challenge for Mr. Putin is that his economy is not growing. Uh, the current COVID pandemic is hitting Russia very hard. And there are increasing reports, and there's more and more evidence that it is not under control in Russia any more than it is in our own country or most elsewhere, uh, despite what people are told. And people don't, frankly, have much confidence in what their government is telling them from Moscow. So, I mean, his fa he faces now the challenge of justifying why the Putin system should continue to rule because it isn't necessarily demonstrably making life better or seemingly defending Russia from any proximate real threats that it sees. And its adventures overseas in Syria and Libya, this doesn't mean very much to most of the Russian public. They, they do want to see Russia be a great power, but they also want to have a better life and they want to see economic progress. So I think if you ask Mr. Putin's future or the future of Mr. Putin's system, even if it's not identified just with him as an individual, it's going to rest very much on his ability to satisfy the needs and desires of the Russian public. And increasingly, I think that is uh, in question. And you're having open challenges to it from demonstrations and you know uh, open opposition. But I think the thing to watch and the thing that really was critical in 1990-91 when the Soviet Union collapsed was that the government itself must meet the basic requirements and needs the public expects of it. And if it doesn't or it starts to falter in that, then I think the support for the current system and its leader or leaders is going to come under real threat. But until that time, I think until the people withdraw their consent, if you will, uh, we can expect to see the system of some, some shape, way, shape, or form, like we are watching now, continue. Now, whether it will be with Mr. Putin or with another leader, I don't know. But I think the, uh, a major upheaval in the system is not too likely unless you have a real collapse of the ability of the, the, uh, the leadership to satisfy the needs of the public. And that's what happened in 91. It wasn't about a uh, single leader uh, falling. It was about the fact that people simply withdrew their consent from the Soviet government. It just wasn't satisfying their needs. How, how strong is the opposition these days uh, in Russia? I mean, uh, you know, I, I think what a lot of us, again, perception, uh, you know, you've seen uh, some 
uh, loyal opposition members poisoned. And so uh, uh, for I think most of us, we see that opposition is uh, not only uh, diminished, but can be a very dangerous thing in, in Russia these days. Uh, or is there a, a robust opposition uh, that is out there that at least is giving voice to some of the concerns? Well, I think there certainly is a, a, a if you will, an opposition community that is very critical of the government, uh, is making very clear their view of where the government falls short and why it falls short, uh, that opposes the authoritarian nature of the, the regime and the government that Mr. Putin leads. But is this a group that can uh, legitimately be seen as a likely replacement for the government? I have my great doubts. One of the things that I've often said to my friends in the, in, who are among opposition uh, folks is that being in opposition is not enough. If you're asking the people to support you, you have to tell them what they're going to get if they do. And in most respects, uh, I have to say, uh, mostly what the people of the Russian Federation hear from the, quote, the opposition is what's wrong with Mr. Putin and the government, either locally or at the leadership level and so forth. They don't hear very much about what would be the future if they were in charge. And I think that's a major problem. Uh, they're asking the Russian people to jump off a cliff without any idea about how far down it is. And that, I think, is, uh, means you have to have a pretty desperate situation for that appeal alone to take, uh, take on uh, momentum. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't uh, instability and, uh, I would say, a good deal of uncertainty about the future. Uh, I think, uh, however, that the thing to watch, my, my own view, is that if you're looking for where there will be change, it is more likely to come from within the system of the leaders and uh, the, the sort of structure that Mr. Putin has created than it is from those who are opposition outside that system. Uh, remember, even Mr. Yeltsin didn't come from the outside. Mr. Right. Yeltsin was uh, a member of the governing elite and the, uh, the party uh, and was the president of the largest constituent part of the Soviet Union when he took power over Russia because he'd already been elected the president of Russia. So, I mean, in a sense, you know, we don't have anything like that at the moment. And I think, um, you know, the reality is Mr. Putin and his system have ensured that there is no really particularly viable political challenge to their authority in the political structure and system of elections that they have. And outside that, uh, it's very difficult to see that you are, have yet this sort of condition in which the people are simply fed up and will withdraw their support from the, the, uh, the leadership and the system. And I think that is the, the real test uh, here for the opposition. I just don't think they offer the alternative that's likely to be, uh, to, we're likely to see take power. Much as we might admire many of the, what, the things they stand for and many of the people who are their leaders. I mean, well, speaking of alternatives, I guess 
this is a good time to turn to uh, the United States and what its posture ought to be uh, with regard to Russia. I mean, we've seen now uh, four years where um, I'm not sure that I can say that the Trump administration or uh, Trump had a policy towards Russia. Uh, I think many of us believe, uh, in, in, in fact, that uh, for whatever reason, Trump was just uh, paying uh, lip service to Russia, was basically rolling over on uh, everything involving Russia. So with, with that as a backdrop, uh, where our policy at, at best has been weak towards Russia and perhaps more more insidious than that, what should a Biden administration do now in terms of uh, Russia uh, moving forward? Well, that's a very good question, Rick. And I want to say first that I don't pretend to have any particular insight into the thinking within the Biden circle here. Um, so what I will give you is my I will be reaching out to you, Jim, because yeah, well, <laughs> you have a lot of insights. Not, that, not yeah. too likely, but, but at any rate... Yeah. I mean, I think the first question that really is in front of us is whether the Biden administration will begin with the understanding or the the recognition that I think it should, that it really is time to step back and think very carefully and fully about what kind of a relationship or what kind of relations we are trying to build with countries like Russia or China or others who are, uh, to put it frankly, not in the same position we are in the international system, but who are other major powers who are not going to go away and who are going to play a major role in finding solutions or ways of resolving the critical international issues that we all face. Now, I think the problem we have right now is that there is no consensus about this question about what's America's position in the world going to be going forward? How, where, how is our economy and our military power and so forth positioning us in the world three decades after the end of the Cold War to provide what Mr. President-elect Biden talks about as American leadership? And what is leadership in this new environment? So all of that comes back to it comes down to the question if you if you then address Russia of asking ourselves well what would a relations what would relations with Russia look like if they were acceptable reasonable you know the kind of relationship that we we would accept as stable and meeting America's critical interests and I think we don't know the answer to that frankly I don't think we've asked that question in a long time. And rather, uh, it seems to me, uh, the, the alternative that does concern me a bit that may be coming from the administration is in a sense to say we've gone through four years of sort of a horrific departure during the Trump administration from what America has been about for decades. And we need to get back to that. You know, we need to get back to what we uh, achieved and what America stood for after World War II, after the end of the Cold War, that that defined us, that defined our role. Well, you know, we have had four years of Mr. Trump and the world is four years older 
And so I think simply deciding we can go back and pick up where we were may not be the most uh, sensible approach. Now, there it may be in certain ways, but I'm not sure it's the best. So I would certainly hope that in, you know, we would go back and say, we're going to extend the strategic arms treaty, for instance. That should just be done. I hope we will go back and try to revitalize and rejoin the agreement with uh, Iran, which was a multilateral agreement involving the Russians and Chinese. Those are things I would like to see us simply return to to get, get a start. But I really would like to know whether the Biden administration is going to undertake a serious review about where does America stand today in the world and what are our objectives as we go, go on forward. Uh, I think it's long overdue that we began that process. And I think the other side of this is that we need a president, and I think Mr. Biden could do it very well, who will speak truth to this, to the question or to the, to the issue of what is America's role realistically in the world today? You know, we are not dispositive economically anymore. We simply can't tell people how it's going to be. Yes, we have the biggest military that without any question, we are the supreme military power. But if you look at the militaries, uh, the use of the military force in the last two, three decades, it hasn't exactly been a wonderful success story. You know, we're still stuck in Iraq. We're still stuck in Iran, uh, in Afghanistan, we're, we're uh, we don't have answers to most of the questions that have been posed, except we've got rid of ISIS. But I think, you know, the, the real question here is, how is America going to lead in the future is going to depend on how we see our role and what our assets are. Here, I think, you know, the frankly, the first question probably isn't what are relations with Russia going to be. They really are going to be how does Mr. Biden restore some credibility and real trust among our allies uh, and our ability to play the role of leadership that we have played with them? Then we may be able to come and think through with them how we're going to deal with China, with Russia, and so forth. But until we do that, I just don't see the, you know, the, uh, I, I fear that we will think it's adequate to go back to where we were. Let me ask this. In 1994, I did a lot of uh, the, the G7 slash G8 summits for, for <clears throat> President Clinton. And in 1994, at the, when we were in Naples, that was the G7 plus one. And, you know, Yeltsin uh, became integrated. Russia became integrated into the G7 process. Uh, a lot has happened. And now uh, Russia is uh, outside. It's gone from G7 plus one to G8, and now it's back to G7 again. You know, would it be prudent? Not, not certainly on day one or year one, or but it, it, is there is there a pathway for Russia uh, to become uh, once again a member of the G7, or has that ship just now sailed? Well, that's a good question, but I and I think it raises a more basic. Uh, and that is, uh, again, it relates to the, what we just discussed. How is America going to deal with the other major powers? Because uh, China is not a member of the G7 either. 
Uh, if you're talking about a, an organization that's supposed to be sort of the, if you will, the brain trust for the world economy, not to have China in it is really doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, you can, you know, I, the G7 can work perfectly well as a Western economic organization, which essentially is what it is now. But I think, you know, the, the real question is you're posing is how are we going to uh, approach a country like Russia that says we are a major power and we are demanding a voice in the decisions that affect the global system, if you will, or the global economy, or the global security system, or the global health system. How, how are we going to engage countries like China and Russia now? And how are we going to build relations with them that allow us to address the things that are vital to our interests and at the same time, uh, bring them along to feel that they too have a voice in the decisions that get made, because they're not going to allow us simply to dictate the future. It's just not going to happen that way. And I think that's the single biggest problem Americans face right now, is understanding that we need to bring about consensus or mutually acceptable uh, resolution of things like climate, for instance. We cannot decide what the climate's going to be or what programs that will be effective to change the climate. We can set an example. We can push our own positions very hard in the international system. But Obama, I thought, demonstrated what you can do if you begin to act as a leader and deal with these other countries on the basis that they have real interests, they have true uh, requirements that are going to have to be managed and dealt with if you're going to get any kind of consensus or resolutions. So, I mean, to me, for instance, if you take the situation today, how we have put ourselves in a situation which it seems is preventing us from talking to the Russians or the Chinese in any serious way about how we deal with this pandemic is lunacy. <laughs> I mean, yeah, uh, I it's lunacy for the Chinese and it's lunacy yeah. for the Russians as well. I don't, I mean, I don't think we're alone in this. But the idea that we're all going to go about finding a solution to this on our own. And we don't have, and we have a president who says he won't work with the World Health Organization. It's crazy. I mean, this these are things that don't have a single country solution. You know, look, I don't know whether the Russian vaccine is any good. I have no idea what the Chinese have got. But the idea that we are the only ones who are developing a vaccine that will be of any use to me, it doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, first of all, it's being done with the Germans or the Europeans. But I mean, the idea that our scientists are not engaging the, the science scientists available in the world community in any way they can to beat this virus is to me plain crazy. But it's what's happening, uh, I think. I mean, I don't see any great effort to cooperate or discuss this with the Russian scientists. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe on the scientific communities, there's more going on than we know. 
but certainly it is not something that either party is promoting on the on the political level. So I mean, it seems to me these uh, these kinds of things like climate, public health, the issue of immigration and immigrants and population flows, plus the old issues of terrorism and so forth, all of these issues are ones in which it's clear the United States does not have a unitary solution. And even with our allies cannot come up with a solution, we're going to need these the participation and the acceptance uh, and engagement of these other powers who have an interest in resolution as well. But we've got to explore how to get there. Hopefully, a new administration, a Biden administration with somebody as experienced uh, in global affairs as Vice President Biden can at least create new opportunities for cooperation um, and maybe a new pathway forward. At least that's that's what many of us hope. I know that's what I hope personally. Well, that's what I hope for as well. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I fully hope that there will be a serious look uh, and, and reassessment about where we are, having gone through this sort of bizarre era of America first, whatever that means, <laughs> and, you know, get back to the idea that if we're going to be leaders, then we have to have people who will work with us, and we have to have some followers. So, I mean, it's not, you know, a, a simply a question of America deciding what we're going to do. Jim, I I can't tell you how much I've appreciated listening to you. Uh, You um, bring a um, common sense approach to uh, diplomacy. And uh, the the very first time I met you uh, over there in Russia, I I said, here's a guy who uh, really is a a great thinker, a common sense practitioner, uh, somebody who uh, brings a lot of thought to public policy. So we are very grateful for your service. And I'm personally very grateful for you being uh, a guest on uh, Perception Reception. Thank you. Well, Rick, thank you very much. And I have to say, I've always valued your insights and thoughts as well. And so let's keep up the good work and let's hope for a very, very successful and very, very creative new administration. From your mouth to God's ears, Jim. (laughs) Thank you. Take care, Rick. All right. You too, Jim.